Here now the reading of God's inspired word, Revelation 16, starting at verse 15. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were voices, and thunders, and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake, and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. Thus far the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word, Revelation 16, verses 15 through 21. We've had the execution of the first four vials in verses 1 through 9 reprobates and idolaters judged and cursed. Then, second part of the execution, vials 5 and 6, the judgment of the Western and Eastern Antichrist and Armageddon prepared for. Now we have in verses 15 through 16, the consolation of these vials, the coming of Christ and the blessing of the watchful. Behold, our Lord says, I come as a thief. Here's another image for you. The lamb, the priest who offers incense, the harvesting priest, the stomper of grapes. Here he is, the thief, coming as a thief, quickly, without anyone noticing. This is a consolation to the people of God. Remember, this is all judgment. This is all cursing. But this little verse is a gem of blessing that Jesus gives to his watching disciples. Verse 16, we'll pick up with the Armageddon. Remember verse 14, where he said the day or the great day of God Almighty was coming. Then there's the blessing of verse 15. Then verse 16 shifts back. What is that day of Almighty God? It is called Armageddon. Here, though, the Lord issues a blessing. Blessed is he that watcheth. In the midst of so many plagues and curses, here is a blessing. To whom does the Lord issue this blessing? Have you ever known someone named Gregory? Did you know that that name means the watchful one? In fact, it means a bishop or a shepherd because the Gregas is the flock of sheep the Gregor is the one who looks after the sheep, the one who watches over them carefully, constantly. As Jacob said, day and night, 
I was frostbitten or burned because I was watching the sheep all the time. He was a watcher. The watching one is blessed. The one constantly watching. Ha Gregoron. The one constantly engaged in this duty of watchfulness. Why? Because when does the thief come? When nobody expects it. So if you're constantly watching, you see the thief coming and you know judgment is coming and you're watchful and you avoid the judgment, in other words. Would you keep off the bears, the wolves, the leopards, the other anti-Christian beasts? Well, you must be watchful. And notice, and keepeth his garments lest he walk naked. Since the beast desires a defenseless and naked soul, one without the righteousness of Christ to cover, without the word of promise from God, without the precepts of God to govern, you will be ashamed if you fall for his tricks. That's what he wants you not to have, the testimony of Jesus and the commandments of God. No, the beast wants you without those. Let us be awake let us be watchful against temptation, against the seduction of the beast and the woman. The man of sin will not be plagued without resistance against God. Notice verse 16 picks up the thought. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. Now it's interesting if you take this as a continuation of verse 14... Who is the he? Look at verse 14, please. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of who? God Almighty. Who is the he that gathers them together to Armageddon? It is God Almighty. God himself gathers these people together that the spirits of unclean demons gather together as well. In fact, the same verb is used. They gather, verse 14, sunago, it's where we get our word synagogue from, the gathering together. The unclean spirits gather the kings together. Who else does? God gathers them together. He gathereth them. Both the spirits of devils and God Almighty gather the kings for different ends. Why do the spirits of the frogs gather them? So that they can fight against God. Why does God gather them? So that he can crush them. Two different ends. Working in one series of events. I note then this doctrine from our Confession of Faith concerning God's providence, chapter 5, paragraph 4. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that it extendeth itself even to the first fall and all other sins of angels and men, and that not by a bare permission, but such as hath joined with it the most wise and powerful bounding and otherwise ordering and governing of them. Can the devil do anything other than what God has ordained? He cannot. 
God binds them so they cannot follow this way or that too far. They must go exactly where he wants them. Let us rejoice that men, devils, spirits of devils, the man of sin, his emissaries, his princes, his emperors, his false prophets, his Jesuits, his popes, his dragons, the whole power and glory of Rome, the eternal city, can do nothing but what God designs. God has decreed for the good of his people in mercy toward us, in faithfulness and kindness and wisdom, God has foreseen and foreordained all these things. They will not win. They cannot act outside of God's providence. God will destroy them, and he gathers them together for that very purpose. Where does God bring them? He brings them into a place called in the Hebrew tongue. Hold on a second, time out. I thought that the apostles wrote in Hebrew. Why are they telling us now the name of the place in the Hebrew tongue? There is a specific word here in the Greek, by the way. It's called Hebraisti. It means in the language of the Hebrews, as contrasted with what, do you suppose? The language of Greeks, Hellenistikos, the Greek language. We find this adverb, Hebraisti, in John chapter 5, verse 2. Remember the pool of Bethesda? It was called in the Hebrew tongue, Bethesda. Remember the pavement where they brought our Lord in John 19, verse 13? Gabatha. That's a Hebrew word. John constantly identifies Hebrew words because his audience doesn't speak Hebrew, do they? What language do they speak? What language do they read? Greek. So he has to translate words for them. Here in Revelation, it's the same thing, isn't it? Not just in the book of John, not just in the book of Revelation, but you find peppered throughout the Gospels even translation of Hebrew words. Jesus was given the title, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, in languages threefold, Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. We saw that Wormwood was called Avadon in the Hebrew language, but in Apollyon in Greek. I note then this doctrine. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations. These are the languages of the Bible. There is no Hebrew New Testament. There is only a Greek New Testament. Was that Greek New Testament translated into Aramaic? Yes, it was. But the original language of the documents themselves are Greek. This is a rebuke to the Judaizing language of some. The Hebrew Gospels of the Jehovah's Witness that they fondly dream that the New Testament has the word Jehovah everywhere. You know what it has? A Greek word, kurios, which means Lord. And when it refers back to scripture passages about Jehovah, guess what word it uses? Kurios, a Greek word. And guess who it applies it to? Jesus. That's why they want a Hebrew gospel. Because they don't like Jesus being God. 
They don't want to think of him in that light. They want to say, Yeshua. They want to say Hebrew words so they can be more spiritual. What language was the most spiritual document written in? Not in Hebrew, in Greek. And John has to translate for the, his readers. In the Hebrew tongue, it is called Armageddon. In fact, the gospel that they think was written in Hebrew first is Matthew. Do you know that when he uses a Hebrew term, Emmanuel, you know what he does? He translates that so that his readers who are reading in Greek can understand what that Hebrew word means. The entire New Testament was written in Greek, not in Hebrew. Let us beware of internet theologians. Oh, no, you see, Jesus was a Jew. We have to observe all the Jewish rites. We have to use the Jewish terms, blah, blah, blah. It's nonsense. It's written in Greek, translating Hebrew words so that we Gentiles can understand what they're talking about. The scripture and apostolic rule is the only measure, measure of holiness, and it doesn't tell me I have to use Hebrew words for Greek words written in the New Testament. It just doesn't say that. People made that up. Now, what is this Hebrew word? Armageddon, the hill of Megiddo. Now, if you recall, and we've mentioned this before, the northern kingdom is a type and figure of the Antichrist. You have David and his throne where? In the northern kingdom? No. You have it in the southern kingdom called Judah. It includes Simeon, Judah, and Benjamin. It has Jerusalem on the border of Benjamin and Judah. That is the southern kingdom. That is the lawful kingship. But what happened in the days following Solomon? The kingdom was rent in twain, and someone said, no, we up here in the north, we have a place of worship. It was established by the original Antichrist. His name was Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. They had graven images. They had an alternate way of worship other than what God said. And they had a different Messiah, a different king. What's going to happen to the anti-Christian king in the book of Revelation? He's going to be destroyed. Just like where Ahab had the dogs lick up his blood. Megiddo. God powerfully overthrew the heathen kings in Judges 5.19, and the dogs licked up the blood of the Antichrist in 2 Kings 9.27, Ahab, which, by the way, is why Jezebel is mentioned in the earlier parts of this book. Let us hope in the victory of God's almighty power. The place of his victory over all the forces of the devil, the man of sin, the beast, the antichrist, the harlot, spiritual Babylon, all the kings of the earth coming to do their bidding, God will crush them in a moment and dogs will lick up their blood as they licked up Ahab's. Then verses 17 through 21, we have the third part of the execution. The vial number seven, Babylon judged by an earthquake, hail, and other judgments. The seventh angel pours out his vial into the air. The prince 
of the power of the air. God is going to move heaven above. He's going to move the earth beneath. So the vial is poured into the middle so that both will be affected. There came a great voice out of the temple of heaven. This is Almighty God that we read about in verse 14, summonsing to judgment at Armageddon. And look what God says. The battle has not begun yet. What does God say about that battle? It is done. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. It's the same verb, gegonen. It's already accomplished. It's as good as done. As God's work at the beginning, he said, and it was done. Revelation 21, 6, And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. The Geneva Bible comments on this saying of God's, It is done in verse 17. That is, Babylon is undone as is shown in verse 19 and in the chapters following. For the first on, onset of this denunciation is described in this chapter, and the last containing a perfect victory is described in those that follow, and we will see this. The unfolding and exposition of these vials continues on in 17, 18, 19, 20, all the way to the eternal state. It is done. The last and seventh vial is the last of all. It is the eschatological, the teleological judgment, as we saw last week from chapter 15, verse 1. These last seven fill up to the full and bring to their completion the wrath of Almighty God. There were voices, verse 18 tells us, and thunders and lightning God beginning his almighty work of destruction and desolation of Rome, all of her consorts, and bringing what? In the rubbles and ashes of the kingdom of Antichrist, his kingdom will come. He will destroy his adversaries and establish his son, his king, his Messiah. There was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth. There is both war in heaven, the shaking of the heavens, and the shaking of the earth. The great city was divided into three parts. Now remember, the Vatican Hill on seven hills, where the red dragon was and where the beast now dwells, where the harlot is, what has God already done? Poured out a vial right on the throne of Rome. And now that the throne is destroyed, what happens to the city? The city is going to be destroyed as well. It's going to be divided up, broken up into pieces, you might say. Rome itself will fall. All of its remnants, all of its adherents will be divided into pieces. Some will flee. Some will adhere to the beast. Some might be neutral. But as we shall see in the following chapters, this little city cannot be, this great city, I should say, cannot be Jerusalem. It just cannot. There is no possible way. Was Jerusalem built on seven hills? Were the persecutors of the church, the red dragon with his ten horns and waves of persecution, did they hand off the kingdom to the Jews? 
and say, here now, Jerusalem, we used to persecute the church with these ten waves of persecution. Now, Jerusalem, you rule over the Roman world. Is that what they said? No. They said, you, bishops of Rome, Pontifex Maximus, you rule in our stead. We're going east, you stay here. This is not tiny backwoods Jerusalem. This is the great city. This is the city that sought to destroy the son of the church who came to rule with the rod of iron Constantine himself. And then along with this division of the city, verse 19, the cities of the nations fell. Those cities in league with her harlotry, either directly as those papal strongholds or indirectly as the whole Turkish empire propped up and justifying itself because of what? Roman idolatry, the worship of Mary, of saints, and of images. Do you know that that's exactly what Muhammad said was the reason for his reforms, for his new religion? Because he said, you worship many gods, male and female gods, and you have images everywhere. We know God said no images. So he said, here, I've got a response. Let's destroy and crush the images. Remember when the uh, fall of the star went down to the earth, what did he next do? He opened up the pit and smoke came out and what came forth was what? Islam came forth. The man of sin and all of his devotees and that wicked beast that he caused called Muhammad will all come to the battle. They will fall. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God when God remembers good deeds, he blesses. When God remembers evil deeds, what does he do? He curses. Babylon came in remembrance so that God might judge her wicked works, her evil deeds. And we'll see in chapter 17, verse 5, that this is this woman. The city itself is the woman. Babylon is the whore. She is Jezebel. She is the Nicolaitans, the ruler over the people, the Antichrist's consort. That's what she is. This great and wide dominion ruling over empires, nations, kings, and peoples. God's going to give her a cup. And we'll find out in chapter 17, she herself had a cup. And she would cause the kings of the earth and the nations of the earth to commit fornication. How? by getting them drunk with the wine of her fornications. What does God do to her? Gives her a cup. And what sort of cup? Is it a cup of idolatry and spiritual whoredoms? No. The wine of the fierceness of his wrath. In just judgment for her great cup of abominations and whoredoms, God will give them, or her in particular, a cup of wrath. Now that her city is fallen and divided, the seat has been destroyed, the whore runs for refuge. Where's she going to go? Well, I'll go to my islands. I'll go to my mountains. I'll go to my strongholds. No one will find me there. What happens to the islands? What happens to the mountains? The islands flee away. Every remote hiding place, your city is fallen, your seat is destroyed, God Almighty pushes away your hiding places, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. 
The mountains were not found. Those strongholds, those fortified cities, nowhere to go. Now, what are you left with? Where are you going to go? Well, now God starts firing on you from above. The largest recorded hailstones are about a pound each on record. About a pound. Now imagine 60 times that size. Hail coming down from heaven upon you. Could you run? Could you hide? Could you live? Could you avoid being destroyed by a 60-pound hailstone? A one-pounder can kill you, can crush your skull. Imagine 60 times the force. God shooting down at the blasphemous and wicked men. A talent can weigh up to 50 or 60 pounds. The weapons of our warfare are mighty through God. They destroy and devour our adversaries. We have nothing to fear. That's the point of this book, by the way. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Our adversaries cannot win. It's impossible. Their blood will be licked up as Megiddo, where Ahab's blood was licked up by dogs. God has hailstones at his command. He can send them out whenever he wants. He can destroy the kingdom of the beast, all of his devotees, the power of the Turk. He can take it all away in a moment. Let us have faith to bring such hail down upon our adversaries, to rejoice in our king, to triumph even in death. Remember the apostle says, in famine, in peril, in nakedness, in sword, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. How did these wicked men respond to this amazing defeat? They blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail. They are incorrigible. They cannot be corrected. Unrepentant, not humbled or brought low, but exalting themselves against the knowledge of God with their high thoughts. Let us not be of their number. Let us be easily corrected. You know what God wants from us? Not that we have to be spanked in order to obey. He wants us just to hear what he says. The still small voice, the reading, the preaching of his word. Let us be correctable by God. Let us meditate upon his word. Let us hear his word and read it. And then let us do his holy will, lest we partake in their judgment. 